Revelation is uh, one of those we, we all get a little confused on, don't we, a bit? So um, it is fun to dig in a little bit. Good morning. It's so good uh, to be back with you guys. Um, we are in week two of our series that I've called um, The Seven Letters. And in the book of Revelation, at um, the beginning of it, Jesus gives these kind of seven letters, the seven different churches um, across kind of Asia Minor. And it's um, all of them are, are kind of linked by a postal route, actually. Um, and many believe that the, the whole letter of Revelation was actually written to all of the churches. And, and as you read, and as we'll uh, maybe see a bit, um, the, even these seven letters, although addressed specifically to um, a church, there actually would have been read at all of the churches. And so there's a bit of um, some specificity that it's, it's for a specific time and place, but it's also kind of in a general sense um, a, a, a letter or letters that, that are written for many people, including ourselves as well. And so we get um, the chance to kind of read them, um, the words of Jesus, almost as if he's kind of writing them um, to us as well as we are in this kind of lineage, this history, this um, tradition. And so uh, to me, that's kind of fun to, to be able to dig in. And um, if you remember last week, we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. And, and Jesus, he begins all of these with this, this kind of personification of who he is, right? He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, like he did last week, and he says, these are the words of the one who walks among the golden lampstands and holds the seven stars. And Jesus uses this imagery and this, this kind of metaphor, this picture um, that connects with that church, but again, kind of in a broader sense. And, and last week we looked at how Ephesus was this church that had right belief and right doctrine, um, but somewhere they had kind of missed the forest for the trees, if you will. They had lost the narrative of, of loving, right? Is further on, he says, but I have this against you that you've abandoned your first love. And we explored what does that mean for the, for the church and for us. And, and I think it was a good challenge for us to remember that, that ultimately the, the message, the, the narrative, the story that we are in, that we are telling, is about this outward focus of loving others, just like that's how Ephesus began. Um, but again, by the time a generation after its inception, we had seen that they had lost their way. Um, and so it was that challenge to say, man, what are, the, what are the church for? We are to be the, that lampstand, like Jesus, who, who's walking among the churches, among the lampstands, and we are illuminating the presence of God in dark places. Um, well, this week, um, we're, we're looking at um, a letter to the church in Smyrna, uh, and it, again, would have been the next kind of stop, and it's a, um, it's, it's a fascinating letter. It's one of only two that doesn't have a critique. Um, okay, of the seven letters, only two of them um, do not have a critique that Jesus brings against the church. And, and so it, it, that, that, and you'll see kind of, I think, what, what Jesus is doing and why he doesn't bring a critique when we dig in uh, a bit more. But let's, uh, let's pray before we jump in, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump in in a little more depth. So Heavenly Father, God, um, Lord, I pray for us in here, Lord, so many of us come um, bringing so much from the week, Lord, the stresses, the joys, the um, the baggage, um, Lord, we bring all of that with us. Um, and so, God, I pray that all of us, that we bring that into this space, into this room, um, not leaving it at the door, but, but, Lord, we bring it in to claim it as yours, as, as, as sacred space, even the mess, Lord. So, God, as we come, may you open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. And may you open, open our souls, Lord, to be maybe a bit transformed this morning, to be a bit more shaped into your image, God, as you um, continue to shape us and move in our lives. And so, Lord, um, do your work in us over this next 
um, 30, 40 minutes and beyond, Lord. May that be um, your space, again, to, to live and move um, in us. So God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, open up to that. And we are going to, I want to read the whole letter, and then, uh, and then we'll break it down a bit more verse by verse. So Revelation chapter 2, um, starting in verse 8. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and remember the angel was the leader or the pastor of the church. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So as we see, first observation, Jesus clearly worked for Hallmark. Um, very happy uplifting letter, right? Uh, no, it's a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a, a heavy letter, right? And, and I think we, we're going to, again, see this as it unpacks. But he begins, right, with this imagery. He says that he, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Okay? Now, why would Jesus use that picture or that metaphor, right? That's the image um, that he chooses to address this church. And so we have to begin to ask that question. What is going on that that is the, the, the decision, the, the words, the picture, the metaphor that he chooses to describe himself to this church? Well, um, let's take that last half, who died and came to life. Smyrna um, was, was originally um, established as a Greek colony in the year 1000 B.C., Okay, so way kind of back, it was established as a Greek colony, and at um, 600 BC, okay, so just 400 years or so later, um, it was invaded by a people called the Lydians, and the Lydians came in and absolutely just destroyed um, the city. They smeared them off the map. That's my really bad joke. Um, that's not really why they're called Smyrna, but uh, <laughs> I liked that more than you guys. I'm a dad. It's a dad joke is what it is, right? Uh, but, but the Lydians come in, and they just, I mean, just wipe them off, just destroy the city. And it lays barren for 400 years where there was no sort of rebuilding, um, no present, no, no reestablishment of the city, just absolutely laid barren. Well, in, um, in 200 BC, they, they begin to kind of rebuild, and we see this rebirth of the city where we pick it up now. Or maybe what the city had gone through is they had died and came to life. Right, is, is what happens is when this city is destroyed and wiped out, it takes 400 years for them to even begin to rebuild. I think a bit of what Jesus might be doing with this imagery is he is saying, listen, I, like you, the people who, who your history has this death and rebirth, he says, I have also been there. I have also died and been reborn. See, one of the things about Smyrna when it comes back um, is it really came back with quite, like, quite a lot of vigor, right? When, when we read this text, which again is about 90 um, um, AD after Christ's death, um, the, the city of Smyrna now is between 60,000 and 100,000 people. And it became like known kind of through extra biblical texts at the time, extra historical stuff, it was known as like the crown of Asia, like, it came back, and it was, a, it was known for its beauty and its opulence. I mean, it was wealthy and rich and thriving. When it, I mean, it came back to life. 
Um, it had, in, in the city, um, it had a large library, which at that time was a huge marker of success. Um, it, had a, it had a massive stadium where they'd, they'd hold these elaborate athletic games. Um, they had a, one of the largest public theaters in Asia. It was a 20,000-seat outdoor theater. Right, that's thinking for a first century world, 20,000 seat um, amphitheater. They had um, a golden street that, that was kind of a legend that was traversing through it. On one end, they had a temple um, to the god Zeus. And at the other hand, end of the gold street, they had a temple to kind of a local um, goddess as well. I mean, it came back with like tremendous power and wealth. Um, and part of Smyrna was it was incredibly loyal to the Roman Empire. Okay, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, which we'll look um, next week, they were all, I mean, uh, Smyrna is about 35 miles north of Ephesus, okay, so pretty close there, and all three of them really were rivals um, to compete for Rome's affection. Uh, they, they, were, they were always trying to outdo one another, saying that, man, I love Rome more, and so they were kind of always um, competing. The Smyrna actually became the center for the imperial cult. And again, flashing all the way back to early high school history, the imperial cult was essentially Rome's way of saying uh, it was emperor worship. Okay, Smyrna had become, because they're declaring their kind of love for Rome, they became the center of emperor worship. And so what would happen is, is Rome would kind of travel throughout and you would just begin to, again, as it is, just worship the emperor, that he was elevated to a sort of kind of deity and kind of God status. And so every year, the, the citizens of Smyrna would have to come and they would burn incense to the emperor. And then when they did that, they would come forward and they would say, Caesar is Lord, which is familiar language for us, um, right? He would say, Caesar is Lord. They would receive a certificate that essentially said, I've done my civic duty. Okay, now, this will be important as we dig a little further, is that certificate also brought about a lot of benefits of the Roman Empire. Okay, is to declare your allegiance to Rome brought with it the power of Rome as well. It meant that Rome was on your side, that you had all of the wealth and the power and the status and the benefits of the empire. And so Smyrna, we see this, again, this picture of, of kind of great opulence, of, of, of loyalty to Rome, of wealth, of status and power. And then within this, though, um, you have this tiny church, Right, who, who would have had issues with saying Caesar is Lord, right? because they declared a different Lord. And so I think Jesus, when he says the words of the first and the last, is I think he's taking this small Christian presence, and he's reminding them, he's saying, listen, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who has the first word and the last word. He says that, that you, may under, you may be in this city that is unbelievably devoted to this massive, powerful empire, but Jesus comes along and says, no, I am the words of the first and the last. I've died and I've came back to life. It is this kind of divine empathy that he looks at the church and says, listen, I am with you in the midst of this, this massive kind of, kind of empire. He says, I am with you. See, I, I think one of the things that, that challenged Smyrna is they would have had this allure of the kingdom over them, right? The, the, the Roman Empire. It was, it was always about, like they were living in a time where the temptation to just kind of give in and worship the, the emperor, to, to live the way of Rome, not the way of Jesus, was always kind of just hovering above them. That, that they knew that if they did that, if they worshiped the empire, if they, if they sold out, they would have all that Rome offered, 
And so Jesus is saying, listen, I am the first and the last. I am sovereign. I am king. I have the first and the last word. And he's reminding this church, right? And, and we'll see that this reminder, I think, is so apropos for them because they're, um, we'll see that they're going through quite a bit. So verse 9, let's keep going a little bit. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, there's two kind of oppressions that this tiny church would have been experiencing. They would have experienced social and political oppression, which is a bit of what I've been talking about, is that because they would refuse to declare Caesar is Lord, they would not get their paper that said that they did their civic duty, which meant that often they were re refused kind of the material benefits of living in a wealthy area. And so just as Jesus says, says you, I know your tribulation and your poverty. See, the church in Smyrna, amidst this vast, wealthy empire, was actually very poor. Um, that word for poverty there is the same one we looked at in the Sermon on the Mount, that word patokoi. I don't know if you remember that. That, that word patokoi meant marginalized, oppressed. Um, you know, it was literally this idea of the ones you spit on was the picture from. I mean, it was like abject poverty, living paycheck to paycheck, scraping by. And Jesus says, listen, I know your tribulation and your patoko, your poverty, that you are oppressed, you are marginalized, you are, you are squelched. And, and, and because they refuse this, there's this tremendous kind of weight. And that word tribulation really means pressure, which I like that because it's, it's like Rome is literally pushing down on the church trying to, to kind of squelch any uprising, trying to, to, to squelch their influence, their power, whatever it is. And it says that, that I know your tribulation and your poverty. And again, it's this, this empathetic God who's saying, I see your struggle, which I think is so important. I mean, because when we're in those moments of pain and sorrow, isn't it comforting when someone just says, I've been there. I know that. I know what that feels like. That is difficult. And God says, listen, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And I love what he adds here. He says, but you are rich. He says, but you, in your poverty, don't forget that you are rich. Uh, flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul kind of uses similar language um, in, in this. And what Jesus, I think, is doing is he's reminding them to have a perspective of, of what they truly have as the church. Because it's easy, right, in those moments where we feel the, all this pain and this, this, this sorrow and oppression and all of that coming on, that, that, that we forget maybe what we really have. And Jesus is offering um, a bit of perspective by saying, yes, you are poor, but at the same time, remember what you have, that you are rich. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians, um, um, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse, uh, we'll start in verse 3. And here, Paul has just kind of talked about, um, in, in chapter 5, there's that famous passage that says, you know, those who are in Christ are new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And, and he's kind of described this new birth we have in Christ. And now he's, he's talking about his ministry going forward into this, this empire, into this oppression. And, and this is what he reminds them of. And listen to um, one of the things I love. I love that Paul mentions how um, challenging, or uh, Dan mentioned how challenging Paul is. Um, because when you read this, there's almost a bit of a swagger that kind of comes up in Paul's voice. Um, and he says this in uh, chapter 6, verse 3. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. 
But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless night, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit and genuine love. Verse 7, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing and yet possessing everything. You see, Paul, he, he's, he's, he's communicating that, that when you go in the way of Jesus, often it goes wrong, right? Like he begins with these afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, I mean, over and over and over. And he says that when the world looks on, when the empire looks on, it will look like we have nothing. It will look like we are dead, yet we live on. It will look like we are poor, but we are making many rich. And I love that last line. He says, it will look like we have nothing, and at the same time, we are possessing everything. Because for Paul, for us, church, it's the perspective that, yes, we may not have everything that the world offers us to trust in, but it says that what we have in Jesus is our trust, in Christ alone, right? Like in, in him, we have the joy, the hope, the, the future, right? It's in, in Christ we hold on to, we cling to the words of the first and the last. It is Jesus coming to this church that's facing this social and political oppression, and he is saying, listen, remember I'm the one who's the first, the last, who died and came to life, that yes, you may seem poor, but you are rich. Jesus says, I am with you in your affliction." I am with you in your tribulation, in your sorrow, in your pain. In the dark night of the soul, Jesus is there. And he goes on, and so they're facing this political kind of oppression, but then um, in Revelation, he continues, and they're facing now this, this oppression from the religious establishment as well. Listen to what it says in verse 9 as we continue. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, what had happened is, is the, 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 the Jews, right, had, had kind of struck a deal with Rome, and they were able to not um, say Caesar is Lord um, and still reap the benefits of the empire. Um, but because this Christian kind of movement at the time, right, just birthed out after Jesus' death, um, it was this kind of new uprising that, that, that it, was, it was oppressed, right? And so the Jews, because they were established, had this status, and so what happened when, when just like Jesus and just like this church rises up, they begin to say things that oppose the religious establishment, that say Jesus was God, that the Jews are experiencing this, and they're like, listen, you're trying to move in on our territory. And so they begin to oppress the Christian church as well. And so the Christians here who think, maybe I can at least take some refuge in, with the Jews are now experiencing oppression from really all sides. And I mean, Jesus has very strong language, right? He says, you know, I, I see the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not. He says, they, they, they aren't true Jews, but rather they're a synagogue of Satan. I mean, powerful language. And the, the reason he uses that word synagogue is he's directly linking that with the Jews that were in Smyrna at the time. 
And when we think of Satan, um, you know, we get all sorts of images that come to mind. I don't think it's some guy with a pitchfork running around, okay? I think it's, it's this kind of personification of the evil power, right? Um, and we see that all through Scripture. And so Jesus says the ones who are claiming to work for God are actually pushing evil, right? I mean, it's strong language. He says they're not the true Jews, but rather they're the synagogue of Satan oppressing you. He says you're experiencing this pressure from, from both sides. And the word Satan literally means adversary. Um, and so that might be a little bit of a better picture um, when we think of that. Um, but, but Jesus, again, sees all of this, reassures them that he is the one who is the first and the last. And so he goes on in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer, and behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And Jesus, knowing what's about to happen, knowing what they're experiencing, leads with do not fear. He says suffering's coming, pain is coming. More of what you're experiencing is here. But he says do not fear. And he says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That, that, and if you look historically, some of them were very much imprisoned simply for saying that Christ is Lord or refusing to say Caesar is Lord. So they're being thrown in prison. Jesus says it's because they'll be tested. And then he uses this phrase, for 10 days you will have tribulation, right? And it's kind of an odd um, you know, statement. It's like, was it a literal 10 days? I don't necessarily think it was literally 10 days. I think what Jesus is doing here, what John writing Jesus' words, is, is this idea of 10 days, is a, it, it, there's a beginning and an end to 10 days, right? And depending on what's going on will, will dictate if it's a good 10 days or a bad 10 days, right? 10 days in Hawaii is probably a pretty short time for most of us. We're like, all right. Now, 10 days in prison is probably a bit of a different understanding, right? What I think he's saying is, is that you will be tested. There is this pain coming, but he says that there's a day one and there's a day 10. There is an end. It is a temporary period. He says tribulation, pain will come, but he says, listen, it doesn't get the last word. That the one with the first word and the last word, the alpha and the omega, he says that I received that last word, that your tribulation, your struggling, your oppression, your suffering is temporary. He says, hold on, I'm with you, I'm with you. And he says, be faithful unto death. And many of them would have to be faithful unto death. Right? They would resist kind of the allure of the kingdom and that would cause them to be killed for that faith. And again, this is difficult for us to, as Westerners, as, particularly as Americans, because I mean, if we're honest, like if we were as Christians to pick any time in history to come back, um, living in America at the turn of the millennium is a pretty good time, right? Um, I mean, honestly, throughout history, we don't necessarily face this kind of oppression. Okay, but I think maybe where we relate to this text is that, re that resisting of the allure of the kingdom. Is I think that, that as they're feeling this oppression, they know that at any point, if they just say, Caesar is Lord, they will reap all the benefits that come with being Roman, and I think for us as Christians, there is this allure that we have to resist the urge to, to, to leave the Jesus way, to walk in kind of the ways of, of all the other you know, the world. Not that it's, it's bad and we have to resist and hide and whatnot, but there are ways of doing things that Jesus says that, that will oftentimes lead us down a different road than maybe the American dream or what the world has to offer. And, and I think for us, it's, it's will we resist this allure? 
that the kingdom for the church in Smyrna of Rome was present, and they knew that if they had just given it at any point, all of the suffering would be gone. But it says, be faithful unto death. Jesus comes alongside them. And I think, again, you can see why he doesn't have a critique for this church. Because this church is almost completely squelched. And he comes along, it's almost like he comes alongside, throws an arm around him and says, listen, be faithful. Hold on. The tribulation, it'll be 10 days. It'll, be, it'll happen. And, and day one, you're going to feel like giving up. But listen, day 10's coming. The end will be there. I will get the last word. Rome won't always reign. They won't always get the last word. And he comes alongside them in their pain, in their suffering, in the darkness. And he says, listen, I'm with you. I'm with you. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, what Jesus is doing here is, is as I mentioned at the beginning, that Smyrna was known for their athletic games. Um, they would hold these lavish athletic festivals. And as we've seen, if you flash back to history, um, right, is, is at the end of an athletic battle, right, the Romans would give a, a crown, a wreath right, a crown to the victor. And in Smyrna, that crown really meant that you had done something significant for Rome or for the, the empire. And so they would give this crown, and it was similar probably to kind of be knighted in England. Right? That, that might be the only kind of way we can kind of draw an allusion to it. I mean, it was a significant thing. And so Jesus is, is saying, when you are faithful unto death, when you resist the allure of the empire, that, that you refuse what Rome has to offer, if you hold out, he says, I'll give you a different type of crown. I will give you a crown of life that lasts and endures. He says, for the, for the temporary, it's painful, it's difficult, but resist, and you won't get that crown, but instead you'll get this crown of life. This one that goes beyond this world, that, that goes on into the kingdom of God. It says that this is the crown that I offer. This is the life I offer. And he says, be faithful. Be faithful. In day three, when things seem difficult, remember, day ten's coming. Be faithful. It's temporary. It says, hold out. I am the one who's the first and the last. And Paul says, we may have nothing, but yet we have everything. And he goes on in verse 11. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And he says, He who has an ear, anyone who can listen to this, anyone who can hear what the Spirit says, he says, listen to this. And he says, the one who is able to overcome and conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Right, and this really brings back Jesus' teaching from Matthew 10 when he says, again, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but rather fear the, fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. All right, it's, again, it's, it's this, what I've called this long view where he says, have the perspective of what's really going on that, yes, it seems like it will never end, but take that long view. Remember the second death. Remember what's coming. Remember that ultimate prize, that crown of life. And he says, take that long view. Put it all into perspective. And he says, the, the one who conquers will not be heard. They won't experience the second death. You see, Jesus comes again alongside, and, and, and he, he has this, this empathy, this loving connection with this small, tiny church. And what's interesting, I, I have to double check this, so maybe I shouldn't even mention it, but, but Smyrna, I believe, is the only city of these seven that's still in existence today. It's, mod, it's a modern-day modern Izmir in Turkey. And it's one of the only ones that has continued to kind of thrive on. And I think that the, we get this picture that Jesus had come alongside and they were faithful till the end. 
that they continued on, that, that there is this presence in spirit. Unlike in Ephesus, right? In Ephesus, the church never figured it out. Because there is no, if you were to go in that area now, I mean, the city's pretty much gone. Ephesus itself doesn't really exist, and there's no Christian presence. But there's something about this tiny group of believers in Smyrna where they were able to remain faithful and to hold on. I want to introduce you to my, one of my friends and your new friend. Uh, his name is Polycarp. Uh, I think we have a picture of him up on the screen. <laughs> but Polycarp uh, lived a long time ago. But, uh, but Polycarp at one point became the bishop of Smyrna. Okay, so, so it was really after, as the church is making this transition from the disciples, the 12, right, and they're, they're beginning to die off. They're making this significant tr- transition in the church, and Polycarp is one of the first that was appointed that. He was um, discipled by the apostle John. Um, that looks pretty good on a LinkedIn resume, right? Um, discipled by John. Who? Yeah, the disciple, right? Um, and so he's discipled by John. He has this kind of this acumen about him, but, but he was really kind of a, a regular um, kind of guy. And so he took charge of the church in Smyrna. Well, about 86 years um, into his life, um, he, there's, a, there's an arrest warrant that's placed from the Roman Empire um, to Polycarp. And so when this happens, the, the church and even a bit of the local community had grown to really love Polycarp. And so um, he actually had this good reputation because um, really it was more of the powerful, the elites of society that were, were really applying the pressure. Um, but if you look real locally to those that were engaged with the church, um, ironically, they, they enjoyed the church because of things like being generous that Jesus taught. Imagine that. Um, and so there, there was this bit where the local community really took to Polycarp. And so they, they, the word gets out that Rome is coming to arrest him, and, and his house just gets flooded by friends and the community members, and they rush there, and they're pleading with Polycarp to flee. They're like, run, get out of here. Rome's coming. You can escape if you run now. And Polycarp continues to say, no, I won't resist that. And so he sits there, and, and this crowd is again pushing him and pushing him. They're like, listen, you have to run. You have to escape. You have to get out of here. And, and tradition tells us that they eventually kind of um, convince him, and he essentially goes into the backyard. <laughs> okay, he goes, and he had this, like, back house that he's like, okay, I'll go there, right? And so he goes there, and, and as the Romans get there, they, they arrive at this house. There's this, this gathering here. He's there, and, and this kind of commotion, and, he, and everything's going nuts. And he just says, give me an hour to pray. And so the Roman guard, they're kind of there. They say, we know where you are. We've got you surrounded. That's fine. So he goes off and he spends an hour in prayer. And he's beginning to think again. The people are thinking maybe he's got a plan. He'll escape, um, whatever it is. But he comes out of that. And it says that he walks into the crowd and he says, I've heard from God. And God said, I must be burned alive. Because the way that, that Rome was, was implementing these executions is they would, just like we've heard the stories, they'd throw a stake in the ground, they'd nail you to it, and they'd burn you alive. And Polycarp says, I must be burned alive. So the Romans, they, they begin to kind of get him. And, and, and they really, you, you get this sense that they don't even necessarily want to carry all of this out. And so as they're throwing him in the carriage to take him to the, the court or the proconsul, they're trying to convince him. They're like, listen, just say Caesar is Lord and we can let you go. They're saying, just, just, just renounce it. Uh, give in to the allure of the empire. Just say Caesar is Lord. We'll let you out the back door and then everything's good. And Polycarp continues to just say, I can't do that. And so he gets to the court. He arrives in front of um, the proconsul, and the proconsul himself doesn't necessarily want to carry this out. And so he begins to kind of plead with Polycarp. He says, listen, swear by the fortune of Caesar. Change your mind. 
He says, just take the oath that, that Caesar is Lord and I'll release you. Curse Christ and I will release you. But Polycarp continues to stand strong and listen to his response. There's a bit of an exchange that I want to read. It says that um, in response to, to the proconsul saying, curse Christ, he says, 86 years I've served him, meaning Jesus. 86 years I've served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul responds, he says, listen, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Polycarp responds, call them. For repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted among us. But it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous. The proconsul looks, he says, okay, wild beasts aren't your thing? He says, I shall have fire consume you if you hate the, the beast, unless you change your mind. And his response is, he says, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know that the fire of the coming judgment and the everlasting punishment that's laid up for the impious. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Right? He stands there, given every option to just resist, to, to give in, to walk away. And he says, listen, for 86 years I've served the Lord and he's never done me wrong. He says that the, 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 temp, the, the trial is temporary. Right? And I can't, I can't help but think of these words running through Polycarp's head as he sits there and he says, the tribulation is 10 days. He says, I serve the one who's the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. And he looks him in the eyes and he says, come, do what you will. Right? He has this faith, this perspective, this long view to recognize that whatever comes his way, that there's something beyond. And the story even continues, and, and this one is a bit more of tradition and folklore than it is in our, the history books that we see most of this, is that when he went to the fire, the soldiers reached for the nails to hammer him to the stake, and he says, you don't need those, I'll walk right in. And he goes in because he recognized that whatever's demanded of him, in the perspective of Jesus, and, and, and although it seems like he's lost everything, he remembers that he has everything. Church, this is the God we serve who, who doesn't say that we'll remove all circumstances, that doesn't say that all of the pain and hardship will just vanish, but rather it's the God who says, I am with you. It's the God we serve at communion. It's, it's the God who bled. I mean, let that sink in. Because if God just swoops in and removes our circumstances and instantly heals everything, I think the problem with that is God is then still distant and removed and he's kind of just gone out of this world. But instead, he chooses to enter creation, to enter the pain, the darkness, the sorrow. And he says, I will bleed with you. I will suffer with you. I know your tribulations. I am the one who died and came to life. And Paul says, listen, you think you are dying, but you will live on. And Polycarp stands before the proconsul and he says, why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Church, may we embrace this perspective of God that sees that this is a temporary time. May we, in your sorrow and in your pain, remember the words of the first and the last. That evil and darkness and pain and hurt and sickness and cancer and tears and all of that, it says that will have its time here, but it will not have the last word. And that Jesus is the one who's restoring and working and reconciling all things. So may you, in those moments of pain, remember that that is the God we serve, who's present in the darkness, present in the pain.
Will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we thank you, um, God, for choosing to do things the way you've done, or for choosing to enter the pain, enter the sorrow, and not um, just swoop in and fix things, although we would want that sometimes, God. I think it means more to know you're with us, that pain and sorrow will be there as we look around the world and see how broken it is and how much bloodshed and violence Um, Lord, we can't help but cry out and just say, Lord, you are present here and we just need you. So, Lord, thank you for being the first and the last. Remind us of that when needed. Help us to have a new perspective, Lord. Um, A new perspective to to resist the temptation to give up, to give in. Um, But, God, let us hold on to you because you are sure and you will carry on. In your name, amen.